How are we doing today? We're doing good? How many of you have Puracelled everything around you twice? Like you just spray Lysol walking into every place? Yeah? Anybody? Anybody? How many of you have children that like to lick floors? So it's just, it's just like whatever. Yesterday we decided we would go. My son is eight years old today. It's his birthday. And we decided that we would t- go to Coldstone Creamery when it was 30-something degrees outside. Still getting used to that. Haven't had winter in 13 years. It's California is sunny and about 70 right now, uh, and here it's not that. Uh, there's clouds and precipitation and stuff, but uh, we decided to go to Colstone Creamery, and in the middle of it, for some reason, he just decided he was tired and was going to sit on the floor, and then with the same hands that he had basically rode all over the floor, he then, like, with his hands, ate the ice cream. It's awesome. He's eight, not three. Used to be cute. Now we're concerned. Now we're concerned. Hey, if you have your Bibles, open up to Philippians chapter 2. That's where we're going to be. It's known as a prison epistle. It's written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi. Uh, There's four prison epistles believed to have been written by Paul while he was behind bars. I think it's important to know that because when you know someone is writing this letter not in a season of bliss, but in a season of duress, they're going through stress and difficulty, it kind of changes the context of the words that we're reading when you begin to Read and understand that when uh, Paul writes, for me to live as Christ and die as gain, Philippians chapter 1, he's writing that behind bars where he's literally suffering for the name of Jesus, uh, not for his own tomfoolery and his own life. It changes the narrative. It's not just a coffee mug verse anymore. It's something that's being lived at a high cost. And I would submit to you that the Apostle Paul and the letters that he wrote in Philippians and Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon are all written with the context of a man that is suffering for the very things that he's writing to the church about holding fast to. Are you tracking with me? Now we're starting a brand new series today, a series of teachings that we're looking at uh, uh, several statements that are made not only by Paul but throughout many of the New Testament letters, uh, in particularly the statement, one another. And over 59 times in 100 plus verses, uh, Paul or other New Testament writers write to young, dysfunctional, in various ways, churches, and they remind them to do something in regards to someone else, to one another. And we as a community in the month of January are going to be doing a group launch here in two weeks, or excuse me, in one week. Next week's our group launch. There's a group all right out the doors here, and if you're watching online, you can get access to all the community groups that are meeting all over our community And we'd love for you to take some time and break some bread with a few believers in a group. And our hope and prayer is that if you do so over this period of time in this group season, that you'll find a few people that the church doesn't have to tell you to hang out with in order for you to hang out with them. That you'll find a few people that you choose to share your life, not just at the surface, but below the surface. Not just in church clothes, but in not church clothes. The the real stuff of life will become the real content of your relationship, and you would find as the Proverbs teach a brother that is closer than a, excuse me, a friend that is closer than a brother in your life. And so we we want you to take that step with us this year. There were two things I really felt like God directed me towards whenever I stepped in at the end of October to become the senior pastor here at Four Points. I felt the Lord clearly say, go shepherd. Um, So I feel like it's my job to love you well. And I'm doing my best to try and get to know you. I'm still trying to keep up with the changes of seasons and hairstyles and everything else and the names that I'm learning. Uh, But I genuinely desire, along with our elders and ministry leaders, to know and and love our church well. 
We have a good shepherd and I serve under him and believe it's my job to be a representation of the good shepherd who loves you, who cares for you, who knows you intimately and desires to lead you, whether it's valleys or tables of plenty in the season of life that you find yourself in today. The second thing I felt like the Lord was very clear on as we got in the door and began working was that we need to build community. We're in a season of building. And part of that building is building a community that is attractive to the community around us. Before we reach this community with the gospel of Jesus Christ, I want us to be a community that lives the gospel of Christ together. And if we're not living the gospel of Christ and practicing what the Bible would call us to as the church of Jesus together, then it makes it very difficult for anyone outside of the church to want to be a part of a community here. After all, if we're just as dysfunctional and broken as the communities out there with no unifying force and power that makes us unique and distinct, then what do we really have to offer a community except more opportunities to waste time? And so we want to spend the better part of this year creating space for people to connect with Jesus and each other. And we're doing so within our group series that we're doing today called the One Another Campaign. And we're going to be looking at several of these one another's that the New Testament lays out for us and asks some hard questions. Not just, yeah, we should do that, but what does it look like for you within the context for the majority of you of a group to live out this one another statement? In a couple of weeks, we'll talk about loving one another. In another couple of weeks, we'll talk about serving one another. We'll talk about confessing your sin and praying for one another. And we're going to leave it to a message that's laid out by the Spirit of God through the Word of God and then ask you to go and figure out how to apply that within a group of people. We actually expect you, I know it's a shocker, to not just sit here and say amen, plop, pray, and pay, but to actually leave here and do something with it. Like our hope is that as we encounter the living, reigning, and ruling Savior, that your life would be wrecked, ravaged, and transformed into something completely different. And as a result of it, our communities and the people that we live around would be changed by it as well. So today we're going to start this adventure in the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, that's where we're going to be. I want to read that entire text with you and then we'll walk through it together. Philippians chapter 2, let's start in verse 1. It says, Is... There any encouragement from belonging to Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourself. Something I'm sure all of us have clearly done this week. No problem. We'll move on from that. Here's the one another. Don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. Take an interest in others too. Some texts say, consider others. And I would submit to you that before we look at any other one another, loving, serving, caring, Praying, before we look at any of those, it all starts with verse 4. Making margin to actually be considered. Now, I know it's like a no-dust statement. Some of you are like, you really have to tell people to be considerate of each other? Do you ever have to tell your kids to be considerate of their other brothers and sisters? So it would make sense, parents, who have this experience of kids who are extremely inconsiderate of their brothers and sisters. No, you can't have my poppet. I can't tell you how many times I heard that this week. No, you can't touch my toys. That's my stuff. No, kid, that's stuff I bought. (laughs) I paid for it, and I can touch it and tell your sister they can play with it whenever I want to tell them 
they can play with it because it's not yours. Consider them. Don't make me come and take it from you because you're inconsiderate of them. Not just airing out my parent grievances in front of you. Now, here's the idea. We are to make margin to consider other people around us. Yet, the beginning of the year is usually the most inconsiderate time of the year. We got all of our charitable acts out of the way at Christmas and Thanksgiving, and now we start the new year focused on ourselves, focused on what we want to improve, focused on what our goals are. And this not, is, is not necessarily a bad thing. It's a, a good thing to set out goals and to try and develop good habits that would help us have new and different results in this new year. But for many of us right now, uh, we are so consumed with ourselves that we have no time to pay attention to the people that are in the pew next si- uh, beside us, much less the people that live alongside of us in our own houses. So what if we as the church of Jesus Christ this year started the year out not by paying attention to ourselves but considering another? What if we took what's normally a time of year where we are self-focused and we made our goals around others and, and propelling others to achieve their best year, to, to propel others to reach their full potential in Christ? Would that not potentially be a transformational thing within our community if we became others-focused first? That's what we're doing. Now, the reason the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians has to tell them to be considerate of each other is because it's so easy to be inconsiderate of each other. Most people talk about wanting to get back to the church of the Bible, the church of Acts. Well, that lasted four chapters. That peace, harmony, like kumbaya, everything's good. Four chapters. Then Acts 5, people got racist. Let me rephrase that. Racism surfaced. It was already there. So they began overlooking the Hellenistic Jews and the daily distribution of the food and They began to have conflict where there was no conflict. And that unity that was so easy became extremely difficult to keep. Because whenever you get off mission and you get so consumed inwardly with yourself, you become selfish. And that selfishness rears itself all over churches and all over places around the world. I read a story several years ago about a church in Texas that ended up in court because they couldn't get along. So they were arguing because one church wanted to go in one direction, another church wanted to go in a different direction, and in the middle of that argument, it all centered on an elder at a church dinner that got a little less ham than another elder. And so here the church was in conflict. This is a real story. In court, which the Bible commands us not to do, by the way, dealing with our issues because an elder got a little less ham. Consider others as more important than yourself. Maybe did you a favor with a little less pork pumpkin. (laughs) In the 1800s, there was a church that was in conflict. And their conflict was one church wanted to hire one guy to be a pastor. Another church wanted another guy to be a pastor. So they both invited both candidates to church on the same day. Both pastors took the pulpit at the same time on the same day, preaching at the same time over top of the other one with their parts of the crowd, amening their parts of the sermon until the entire thing turned into a shouting match between the congregation in which law enforcement had to be called in the 1800s to come and break it up. Consider others. You see, inconsiderate people are not absent from being within the walls of the church, and they're definitely not absent outside of the walls of the church. It's easy to be inconsiderate, to live a self-focused, self-centered life. And so the Apostle Paul writes with this reminder. Now let's get some context around this. The text opens in verse 1 with four questions. Four questions that are written out in the beginning of this text. Look at them with me. 
The first question is, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Now, we, we read that, and most questions raise doubt, like it, it, as if this is not so. And you can read these other three questions. Is there any comfort from his love? Is there any fellowship in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate, ham man, that divided your church over less ham? These, these questions are asked not because there's a doubt as to whether or not they are true, but it's a reminder that because they are true, we should not live the same way as the world. Because there's encouragement in Christ, we're going to get a command in verse 2. Because there's comfort in this love, we're going to get a command in verse 2. Because there's fellowship by the Spirit of God, not by our cultural similarities, our hobbies and interests, but because there is a Spirit-drawn unity within the church, we are to live different, we'll get a command on that in verse 2. And since he's taken the heart of stone, Ecclesiastes, and given us the heart of flesh within us because you are different not by your own merit not because you worked hard at it not because you got a peloton and a bible reading plan but because the spirit of god that raised christ jesus from the dead didn't give up and didn't quit but began a good work and carried it out to his completion philippians 1 6 you and i have this new life that we've been called to live this new way that we've been called to go about Doing So Paul is not asking questions as if there is a doubt to them being true, but instead writes them knowing the answer. He is reminding the church that these truths are because of Christ, and since they are true, he gives a call to action that comes in verse 2. Now, let me tell you what he's assuming off of verse 1. If you go back to Philippians chapter 1 in your Bible to verse 27, Philippians 1, 27, this is what he's just said to set up the questions that he's going to ask in verse 1. He says, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, you profess to be a follower of Jesus, you represent more than you. More than your last name, more than your house, more than your neighborhood, more than your kids, more than your family. You represent Jesus the second you take that moniker up. Now, this is not a call to condemnation because all of us have failed Jesus in myriads of ways this week. We've misrepresented the gospel in myriads of ways. It is a call to humble repentance because we, above all people, having received the grace and mercy of Jesus, should be a repentant people because we don't get it right, but we don't have to walk in the shame of our mistake and our failure. Instead, you and I, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, have heard the call, ali, ali, oxen free, and we come out of the darkness and we walk in the light and we don't go back to the darkness in our own sin. Am I making sense to anybody? Anybody awake? Anybody want to have church right now? Or is it just me? Am I just going to encourage myself and preach until I pass out? Is that what's going to happen? So conduct yourselves worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of their, if you go to the next verse, destruction for them, but of salvation for you. Look. People are going to hate, like, like Taylor Swift sang about it. Like, not everyone's going to like you. But the question is, why do they despise you? Do they despise you because you're a Clemson fan or a Gamecock fan, or do they despise you because you're a follower of Jesus, and the Spirit of God rests on you and brings irritation in their life? Now, I'm not talking about bullhorn guy. 
that stands and yells at everyone. I'm not, I'm not talking about the obnoxious Christian that goes to a, a restaurant, doesn't tip anything except for a track that they leave on the table. The, t- the waitress comes by and pours water and like, oh, have you heard of the living water? I'm not talking about that. that. That is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the presence of God that transforms the character of a person in such a way that it brings an illumination of others who are in the darkness of the light and hope that can be found in Jesus. And not everyone sees the light and responds to it well. Some see the light, reject the light, and run to the darkness, despising it. Why? Because it's an illumination of the fact that there is a God who loves them and has demonstrated his grace towards them, but they want to live a self-focused and self-centered life, and they don't want to give up themselves to follow Jesus. I mean, the real cost here of following Jesus is is not just a morality or an exchanging of rules. It is you losing yourself. Like, you die. What you were is gone. What you could do is diminished and done away with. And Jesus now takes up resonance within you. And you now live a God-dependent, God-filled, God-empowered, spirit-led life. And for many of us, we don't want that. Why? Because you got dreams. And I'm not here to diminish the dreams that you have or to tell you that they're dumb or foolish or that Jesus' plan is bigger, although it is. I I am here, though, to remind you of the fact that there are going to be some people, when you are pursuing Jesus wholeheartedly, who cannot deal with with the presence of God in your life. And let them, in that moment, despise you. Let them revile you. Because that's the kind of rejection the Christian was made to endure. It's the rejection Christ endured. Don't let it be about tertiary stuff. Don't let it be about preferential stuff that they revile you and hate you. Let it be that you are so wholehearted, dependent on Jesus, that they... Don't invite you on Fridays because you're the goody two-shoes that loves Jesus too much. Like, 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 let it be your pursuit of Jesus that causes the conflict. Not your pursuit of the world or carnality. Not your pursuit of greed. Not your pursuit of your own selfish agenda and what you want. Let it be your pursuit of Jesus that is the sandpaper, that is the irritation that caused people out of the darkness into the light. So he goes on to talk about this, verse 29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him but also to... Put this in your New Testament theology. This is for a believer to suffer on his behalf. Some of you are suffering because you've been foolish. Don't call that Christian. You're suffering because you don't have a budget. You're suffering because you don't know how to establish and keep boundaries in your relationships. You're suffering because you have a priority problem. You've misprioritized Jesus as being lower than he should be in exalted things to being in the place that only Jesus can be. That suffering is not the Christian suffering that the Bible talks about. Christian suffering is a long-observed obedience in one direction, focused on one thing, and in the pursuit of that, there is a resistance that comes against it. I'm supposed to talk about this later, but if you're a follower of Jesus you will find an enemy that comes to work against the work of God in your life who cannot possess you, but he can oppress you, and he will do everything he can to keep you from the things that are in Christ Jesus and to try and make you doubt what God has promised to give you in the path of obedience of pursuit of him. And so when the oppression of the enemy comes and you begin experiencing that kind of suffering, the Bible says, take note, you're on the right 
path. That's not a fool's suffering. That's a righteous person's suffering. That's what Jesus suffered in. And you've now been counted worthy and blessed by the grace of God, by the Spirit who is at work in you to suffer for the glory of God, which is good news because you are living a life that will echo in eternity whenever you face that kind of oppression that will give a glory to God because it was lived for a purpose that was greater than what's found on this side of time. So this is the context. He's saying, conduct yourselves. Live differently. Because you're experiencing the same conflict you saw in me and now here to be in me. Where's Paul at when he's writing this? He's in the pokey. He's in prison. He's in shackles. So it makes sense as he's writing this letter that he would remind them to do this. Now here's why there's so many letters in the New Testament. One's because God chose to write that many letters. But two is because churches were really jacked up. Every letter you read after Acts is about churches not getting along. Galatians, how Jewish do you have to be to come to church? <laughs> Sorry. Preacher me started laughing. Ephesians, he's dealing with the sufficiency of the gospel and it being enough for us to have unity and camaraderie. I mean, Philippians is a call to hold fast. First Timothy's instruction to a young pastor in a dysfunctional church. I mean, every one of these letters are talking about churches that are struggling to figure out, is the gospel enough to make us family? Is the gospel enough to live and bank our lives on? And is it really a firm foundation or not? I mean, 1 Corinthians gets two letters. And I believe there was a third one that kind of got lost. I had to write a second one again. Because they were so messed up. Karl Barth, the theologian, said there are no letters in the New Testament apart from the problems of the church. So don't look at your church, this church, and say, well, this is really messed up. It is. We're really messed up. I'm the pastor. <laughs> We got problems. We got a good God that's at work and giving us great instruction in the midst of our church. And so all of these questions, these four questions that are asked in verse 1, are asked within the context of this call because of the grace and the mercy and the presence and the faithfulness of God for us to live differently. For us to live differently. So verse 2 gives a call to action. Since we are encouraged, since we are Love, since the Spirit of God has made us who are from different cultures and background family, we, we then are to live differently. Look at what verse 2 calls, four things. Uh, verse 2, it says, Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Make my joy complete by loving one another. Make my joy truly, uh, make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other. So I want you to see four things that are in verse 2. Number one, we are to, in living this life, have the same mind. Then I'm going to show you we're to have the same love. And I'm not talking about Macklemore. We are to have the same spirit. And we're to have the same mission. But because you have Jesus, we are to have the same mind, same love, same spirit, same Mission. Now, this first car, a call comes from verse 2 where it says we are to be wholeheartedly uh, one with each other. Some of you are reading the NASB where it actually uses this, uh, the NASB where it actually uses the word. Oh, you're going there. Made my joy complete by being of the same. There it is. Same mind. Now, now let's be clear. We don't all think the same. 
And some of you are like, thank God, amen? Like we look at life differently. We vote differently. We politically look at things differently. We economically value different things. Like the idea of this text is not that we are going to agree on everything. The idea of this text is that we are to be diverse and one. We are culturally diverse. We are ethnically diverse. But we are one when it comes to the major matters of the gospel. I can't get this out of my mind. The local Christian church should never be homogeneous. Homogeneous means one ethnic group in a multi-ethnic society. The gospel of Jesus Christ transverses all cultures, transverses all ethnicities and backgrounds, and if the presence of God is active, you should see a microcosm of the diversity of the community within the walls of the church. Otherwise, you have a reach problem. What's happened if you become a homogeneous church within a multicultural society is you have a group of people within their frame of thinking and within their mindset missing the very reach of the neighborhood that they've been called to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what ends up happening is you get an introverted, self-focused, inconsiderate church in many ways that's all focused on keeping it comfortable and sane until Jesus comes back that misses out on the fact that God has called them to take the gospel to the nations, which includes their backyard. So we are to be, in this church, a microcosm of the diversity outside of our church, but our unity... The reason we're gathered together comes from the fact that we have a need of Jesus in our, all, in our lives. I mean, the ending picture in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 10, says this. Revelation 7, verse 9. It says, After this I saw a vast crowd too great to count from every... Read it out. What is that? Nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. And they were shouting with a great roar, salvation comes from our God. Not our ethnicity, not our culture, not our background, not our starting point, not our economic status. It's not for the rich or just for the poor or anything in between. No, no, it's from God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. Now, here's my point. If this is the ending picture... Of the church, then how can we be comfortable with a church that doesn't represent every nation, tribe, and tongue? I mean, this is the idea. We're to have one mind. We culturally are different. We're ethnically different, but we are one in Christ Jesus. What does it mean by one mind? First Corinthians chapter twelve, verse thirteen says this: Some of us are Jews. So you're like, why are you talking about race? Because the Bible talks about it a lot. That's why. This is the crux. The entire letter to Galatians deals with this. He's addressing it in Corinthians. Don't get mad when someone reads the Bible to you and it doesn't fit your Fox News agenda. They don't represent Jesus. God, God sent his son to save the world, not just a country. I'll stop before I get in more trouble. Easter's coming, got to get room. <laughs> some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, and some are free, but we have all been baptized into one body hmm. by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. So we are to be of one mind. Here's the call. We're to be of one mind. Mind. So diverse culturally, diverse in background, diverse in earthly statuses, but of one family, mind, and unity in Christ Jesus. 
It's a unity that is built on the foundation of faith. So we are to have the same mind on the major issues of the faith. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Same mind. We all needed a Savior to save us and deliver us from ourselves. Same mind. Jesus is the Savior who lived the life we couldn't live and died the death we should have died. Same mind. We're in agreement there. Jesus has availed and made himself available to all people. Same mind. Whosoever believes in him and puts their faith in him shall not perish but will be saved. We're to have the same mind there. Romans 10 says if we confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts that Christ Jesus raised him from the dead, then he is faithful and just to forgive us. That's all that is required. Same mind. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to become more culturally like me or more ethnically like me. You don't have to play the part of looking like my world version of myself out there before Jesus stepped into my life. No, we are being made into the image of Christ. Same mind on that. We find our unity in that pursuit, not in our cultural differences that divide us outside the walls of this church. So we're to have the same mind because we're Christian and we're different. Number two, we're to have the same love. Look at verse two again. Verse two, it says uh, in the NASV of Philippians chapter two, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love. What's the, the, there's this uh, commandment that Jesus gives. This guy stands in front of him and says, what must I do to be saved? And he says, what have you heard? And he says, you must keep the law. And Jesus says, yes, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Here's the thing. If we cherish Jesus, loving of our neighbor, consideration of our neighbor is a non-negotiable. It is the byproduct of a life centered on Christ. Inconsideration comes from an infatuation with Jesus or indifference towards Jesus that leads to an indifference towards our neighbor. If you're not being considerate of others, it starts with an indifference towards Christ, not an indifference towards your neighbor. When you love Christ genuinely, he leads you into an overflowing love of your neighbor that is genuine for them to experience and see in your life. So we are to be, because we're followers of Jesus, of the same mind, of the same love, of the same Spirit, look at what it goes on to say in verse 2. Because of our relationship with Christ, we are to maintain the same love, united in one spirit. We've read and talked about that. It's the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead that drew me into relationship with Jesus. And if you're a follower of Jesus, the same spirit that drew me and raised Christ Jesus from the dead drew you. And now we're here worshiping Jesus by the same spirit at work in all of us who knows our needs and desires, who's at work in our Lives, so we are to be of the same spirit, unified by that spirit, empowered by that spirit to do the good works that God has called us to do, which leads us into the last call of this. Because you're a follower of Jesus, we're to live differently because of the presence of God, because God is here. He's softened and tenderized our hearts. And in verse 2, it says, finally, not only are we to be of the same, uh, same spirit, but we are to be of the same mission, intent on what? One purpose, which is to get the right color of carpet in the church, which is to get the right flavor of music in the church, which is to get the right, the right ministry programming in the church. No, deny your preference. Take up your cross and pursue Jesus. It has nothing to do with tertiary, secondary things. Look, if the song is about Jesus, you can raise your hands and sing it. If it's truth about Jesus, then you can declare it as a praise and glorify God through it. I don't care if it's got a drum beat or a hum beat or no beat. I don't care if they can sing great or they can't sing good. The, the beauty of it is, at the end of the day, you and I 
have the same mission, to live a life that is focused on one thing, the glory of God in and through us to the nations. So the disciples would be made, so that the lost would be found, so that the hopeless would find hope in Jesus. It's one thing. It's all about getting that done. And I don't care how we get that done as long as we make it the main objective. Church goes wrong when we don't do this, which is why we have to hear verses like verse 4 that say, consider others. Now, how do you, how do you live a life that does this, that prioritizes it? Let me give you a few things that come in verses 3 and 4. Number one, you check your motivation. How do you live this way? You have to check your motivation. Go back to verse 3 of Philippians chapter 2. You've got to check your motivation if you're going to do this. Do nothing from... How many of you have formalized concerns as prayer requests that were really about seats on the bus that you wanted? I'm really concerned about the church, Pastor... You know, so-and-so, outside of here, ain't living the same way. And I, I received that. I am concerned. But ha- have you talked to them? Have you fought for unity over it? Have you been concerned about their spiritual state to where you were willing as a brother and sister in Christ to go them directly? Because Matthew 18, last time I checked, when it comes to church conflict, calls you to go first before you go and get the preacher and the committee. And if you've not gone first, don't come and talk to your preacher about it because that's gossip. You go first. You fight. Like, like unity, it's not just going to maintain itself. Satan hates it. So naturally, there's going to be some people, to, for lack of a better term, that grind your gears and you want to diminish them so that you can elevate yourself. So the, the text says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Don't be conceited. Don't bring that into the church. Don't make it about you. We're not here to worship you. We're not going to sing songs to you. It's not about platforms you get to stand on or you don't stand on. It's about Jesus getting glory. So do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. That's what Satan wants you to operate in because he knows it will divide the church. So you've got to, number one, if you're going to live this way, check your motivation. Do nothing for selfish ambition. Why do you labor? Why do you serve? Why don't you serve? Did you go Kenny on us and take your ball and go home because you didn't get to do what you wanted to do? All the dudes got that one that were under 35. Check your motivation for why you serve or why you don't. Number two, Wreck your arrogance. If you want to live an other-centered life, we're going to practice this. You've got to check your motivation. You've got to wreck your arrogance. Look back at the text with me in verse 3. It says, do nothing out of selfish or empty conceit, but with humility, everyone's favorite word, consider one another. Especially the one another's you don't want to consider right now. They may be in the room. They may not be at the room. They may be in this church. They may be at your old church. You left because of them, because you couldn't deal with them, couldn't stomach them. I believe they're going to be your neighbor in heaven, especially if you don't get it right here on earth. Not because God's going to punish you, but because he'll show you his goodness in it. So do nothing from selfish conceit, but with humility, consider others as of more importance than yourself. You've got to wreck your arrogance. My favorite verse when people come in angry with other believers is Romans 15.1. Y'all have that one memorized yet? Ready for this? It's one of my favorite verses. It says, we who are strong, if you think, oh, I'm strong, and it's their weaknesses that are dragging us down, okay? 
we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. You don't get to dismiss them. You don't get to disregard them. You don't get to write them off. You can unfriend them on Facebook, sure. But you don't get to be inconsiderate of them. No, we're to consider them. We desire good for them. We bear in patience with them. Why? Because Jesus bared in a lot of patience with you. And if he is in you, then you can be patient towards them. So if we're going to do this, we've got to wreck our arrogance. Number three, we've got to consider the other. Consider the other. Check your motivation. Wreck your arrogance. Consider the other. Look at what it goes on to say in verse four. It says, do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Consider others. And then finally, we think differently. If we're to apply this, this other's first mentality, this one another where we're called to make space in our mind, within our considerations, within our lives of someone other than ourselves, we have to think differently. What does that mean? I have to begin to think, how does my gift, how does my time, how do my talents benefit someone other than myself? You know, God doesn't say it's not good for man to be alone until he first gets Adam working for someone other than himself. Isn't it interesting that before you get to Genesis chapter 2, I believe it's verse 17, 18, 19, somewhere in there, where he says, it's not good for man to be alone, I'll make a helper suitable for him. First, he says, Adam, go work in the garden and steward it. Why? Because if you can't keep a garden alive, what makes you think you're going to keep a family alive? Some of you got married before you knew how to keep, take care of a garden, and now you're wrecking both a garden and a family. And God in his grace desires that you would mature and grow up into a God-centered life that's dependent upon him for every need and every aspect of your life because you have been called to be a spiritual leader in your house. Some of you need to stop messing around with controllers and fondling those things and then putting that down and going and messing around with your girlfriend in ways that you're not supposed to that are dishonoring to God because culturally it's acceptable and begin to handle the word of God before you ever handle a woman of God. They're amen in you, but they date you. And they make room for the childish behavior. For you to be an immature young boy that shapes, but have the responsibilities of an adult. You have to get a license before you drive a car on the highway, because if we give you the keys before you get the proper tools, you'll go and train wreck a whole lot of other people's lives. But in many ways, you can, anyone that wants to go to the courthouse can get married and skirt the authority of the church that calls them to accountability and to maturity before they do so. So then women coming to my office crying because they married an immature man of God, an immature person that could become a man of God, who played the part, but his first name was Luke and last name was Warren. And God loves you. He has a plan for your life. I'm convinced of it. I'm confident in it. But for many of you, you're so self-centered that you can't think of anyone else, which means you don't need anyone else around you right now. See, the, the call within the church, the way this works is I preach not to my own benefit. I mean, if I were trying to say things that were to my benefit, I would say everything that would make you want to come back. I'd be cute. I'd be funny. I'd never be serious. I preach the parts of the Bible that make you think that you're God not the parts of the Bible that remind you that you're under God. I would tell you you're doing fine, but there's no need to repent. Instead of saying, bend your knee and repent at the conviction of the Holy Spirit. This isn't about 
what's beneficial to me. It's about how do I use my time, talents, and gifts to benefit you. And the idea is that you would do the same. Like if we're this year to be the church that God has called us to be, then we've got to take to heart these words that are in Philippians that call for not an action, but a space that is made between the ears. We're not even to the action of loving. We're just trying to make some margin in our brain that when we wake up, we can consider others. But that's, that's very difficult because it's hard to wake up day in and day out and have margin for somebody else sometimes. Parents know this. My kids have this ability to sleep in every day that they're school. But when this beautiful thing called Saturday comes, they wake up like birds ready to chirp at 5.30 a.m. So just this Saturday, as I'm getting ready to preach, consider others. My four-year-old, 5.30, comes pounding down the hallway. We can hear her coming. Oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. No, not yet, not yet. And she's hungry. And she wants to watch cartoons and cuddle with daddy or mommy. And I'm playing like I'm asleep because I don't want to consider mommy. I don't have margin in my brain to consider anyone at 5 a.m. other than my, myself. <laughs> and Morgan begrudgingly begins to talk to my daughter. And the whole time I'm going, and I'm feeling the Lord going, consider. And I'm like, mm, not right now. Your grace is enough. I'm sleeping in your love. I, I don't want to consider. The problem is for a lot of us, 5 a.m. is all of our life. We don't consider them at 5, at 9, at noon, at 1, at 3, at 5. Like we just don't have margin. But the Christian life is that we would take up our cross and in the path of Jesus we would walk. And this is what's beautiful about the rest of Philippians. Jesus, Paul doesn't leave us with the simple call of living this way. He reminds us of the example that came in Jesus. Let me read it to you as we close out our time. Philippians chapter 2, it goes on to say this. I promise I won't preach it. Verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Why do we live in others' first life? Because it's the way Jesus lived. Who, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He is Alpha. He was there in the beginning. He left the riches of heaven to walk in the slums of earth so that those who walked amongst the slums of earth could walk and enjoy the riches of heaven. So he left his rightful seat of authority to walk amongst us. And as a result of it, he emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men. This does not say, it's not suggesting that he ceased being God. It's that he set aside his divine attributes as he wrapped himself in, ple in, in flesh. So he was finite. He was in one place at one time, but he was still fully God. He's omniscient, but he walked amongst us, asking questions and living amongst us, setting that aside while he was here. So he emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men. Look at what it says, verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of, that's the service the Son has given you. You, in your own actions, deserved death. Jesus said, I'll die for you. Death on a cross, we could talk about that for a long time, I promised I wouldn't preach it. For this reason... Also, God highly exalted him. Here's what I want you to see. Jesus was exalted and gave it up to become a servant. 
Mark 10, 45, Jesus said, For the Son of Man cannot to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The disciples were walking with him just before the cross, and they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in God's kingdom. Who gets to be the Christian celebrity today? Whose podcast is going to get downloaded more? John, is it going to be yours? Peter, is it going to be yours? Who's going to get a bigger Twitter following? Who's going to get a bigger platform so that they can point to themselves and flex their muscles like Rob Van Dam did on ECW? Like, 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 sorry. <clears throat> In the middle of that, Jesus asked them, what are you talking about? And the disciples didn't want to bring it up. You know why they didn't want to bring it up? Because they didn't want to talk to Jesus about their self-centered, focused, shameful way of thinking. And Jesus said, look, look, no, my kingdom, the greatest will be the least. Those who are great will be servants of all. <laughs> you want to be great in the kingdom of God or do you want to be great in the kingdom of the world? If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you've got to have a descent into greatness. Don't miss it because I'm out of time. A descent into grace. Jesus left heaven and came into the slums of earth and now is seated in authority, highly exalted. And for you and I, this is the life we've been called to live. We serve because we are going to enjoy the glory of God for eternity. We serve because it's not about getting the most out of life now. It's about representing the servant of all now on earth. So consider others as better than yourself. Because when you do, Jesus and the Spirit of God are seen in a unique way within our fellowship. We become an attractive aroma to our community, a light in darkness. So what does it look like for you today to live an others first life? Our prayer team's going to be here. We'd love to pray with you and talk with you about it. Maybe for you, it's just sitting in your chair going, God, forgive me for being inconsiderate of others around me. I wrote this in a journal today. I'm not going to write the name in that I wrote in it, but I wrote this. Because Christ considered my need and served me to the point of death, I will consider blank. I will consider blank and seek to allow Christ's grace, love, and mercy to flow through me to them. Maybe this is you. You can snap a picture of this and think about it all day. Because this is the example of Christ, and he's in me, and he's at work through me, and he served me to the point of death, I will consider the child I wrote off, the boss I hate, the people in my church that don't act like I act, don't think the way I think, and seek to follow Christ's grace, love, and mercy to flow through me to them. Not in spite of me, but through me. If you need prayer, if you need to worship, you stand. But let's respond as the Lord leads. In Jesus' name.